You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, it is the biggest ever takeover of a private software company. Adobe has agreed to buy the software design startup Figma in a deal valued at $20 billion. We're going to hear from executives at both companies in an exclusive interview. Plus, the merge is here. Success. We're going to hear from an Ethereum core developer about whether it's all going to plan and what is next. And climate tech investor and entrepreneur David Friedberg is with it, us. You might also know him as a bestie on the All In Pod. We'll ask about his new SPAC, today's big tech M&A, and Elon Musk. A number of social platforms will announce new actions to combat hate crimes and racially motivated violence at a summit hosted by President Biden at the White House. Representatives from Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Microsoft all planning to attend, the company's new efforts will be unveiled alongside a package of federal initiatives to design and address hate-fueled violence. Meantime, hundreds of workers at an Amazon warehouse in Coventry, England, are now striking over pay. They've been threatening strikes across the UK after a major rise in the cost of living. Any action to protest against the company's pay packages would likely take place in November, according to the union. And the UK will open an in-depth probe of Microsoft's planned $69 billion purchase of the video game maker Activision Blizzard. Regulators saying the deal could hamper competition and that Microsoft turned down the chance to offer remedies to address its concerns. If the merger goes through, it'll make Microsoft the world's third largest gaming company. agriculture company is planning to list in the U.S. via SPAC with the help of one of the most prominent climate tech entrepreneurs. Lavaro helps farmers boost production by offering a suite of key ingredients like seeds, fertilizer, and more. I want to get right to David Friedberg now, a longtime founder turned investor focused on climate technology, the CEO of the Production Board, which just merged with Lavaro, as well as you might know him as the co-host of the All In podcast. David, so great to have you with us. Big list here. Thanks, Talk to us about the thesis behind this SPAC deal. Why SPAC? Why now? 
Yeah, so we set up the SPAC about a year ago specifically to do a strategic transaction, meaning we were seeking a business that operates at scale in a market that we know well, food, agriculture, biomanufacturing, life sciences, and where we believe technology that exists in our portfolio of businesses could be additive and accretive to their operations. And we know ag very well. Um, came across Lavoro, which is the largest ag retailer in Brazil, leading ag inputs retailer in Latin America. Um, and this business really has an incredible opportunity to transform how farmers farm in this market. And Latin America is the largest ag export market globally, it is the largest provider of calories around the world. Um, and so this is a massive opportunity because farmers locally in that market don't utilize the best technology. They don't uh, have the greatest productivity, which is yield per acre. And using ag retail, we can actually access that farmer and really transition them to new technologies like biologics, software, and other tools that can massively improve their productivity. Uh, and that results in more calories, more sustainability of food production. And it's so impactful because this region is so important globally right now. So I'm curious about the decision uh, to do us back in general when they've been under a lot of pressure, you know, they've almost disappeared in the last few weeks. Why do you choose that? Why did you choose that as the vehicle? Yeah, so we set up a SPAC um, last summer. And so we've been, um, you know, it's the only off-balance sheet uh, vehicle we have. The rest of our operations at the production board are all balance sheet driven capital. Um, and we build and, and invest in businesses off our balance sheet. And we did this specifically because there were public market investors that were interested in partnering with us. And we thought that this could be a really great mechanism to find a business that we could be useful to. Uh, and that's exactly what we're doing. So, so we're actually investing $100 million off our balance sheet into the transaction. And several of our businesses are going to be partnering with Lavoro um, in the future, we do hope, uh, as a way to bring new technology to that important market. Uh, and so this is a really great strategic vehicle, and the SPAC is really just a mechanism for doing that uh, and for getting a meaningful ownership stake in a business of scale. I mean, this business, as we show in the presentation, um, should do about $1.6 billion top line uh, this, uh, uh, this year and is doing about $172 million pro forma adjusted EBITDA this uh, calendar year, growing to 277 next year. Um, and so it's a business of scale. It's profitable. And I think that there's a real way to drive um, further uh, margin improvement and further uh, revenue growth with some of the technologies we can bring to bear here. Talk to us about deep tech investing, which has been your thing for so long, how yeah. it's different in a bull and bear market. You know, obviously these are companies that need funding, but it can be a harder sell when times are tough. Yeah. So it's exactly, I mean, what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, deep tech investing typically invests on a milestone based a program. So you look at some technical breakthrough, you know, proving something works, and then you raise more capital, and then you prove that the next thing works. And eventually you have a product, and eventually you can sell the product and make the product, and eventually you can scale, scale into the market. Uh, and so that takes several years, and capital needs to be unlocked uh, in milestone-based uh, um, increments. In a market like this, where you can buy U.S. Treasuries and make 4%, or you know, buy a, a great stock that's got a 5% dividend yield and it's a growing business, it's really hard to find capital into highly speculative long-range investment cycles. So the interest rate environment really challenges deep tech. Um, and it really challenges, and, and I think we've particularly seen it of late in the biotech market. 
I don't know the latest statistic, but as of a few weeks or months ago, biotech, um, roughly 40% of public issues were trading below cash. Um, and so I think it really speaks to the challenge that deep tech uh, businesses face. Now, what we're doing with Lavoro as an example, and what I think happens often nowadays in biotech and will continue to happen with other um, more deep tech um, investing cycles is to partner. So you partner with the large business, you partner with the business that has scale, reach, distribution, cash flow that can really benefit if your deep tech pursuit unlocks some value or some opportunity for their customer base. Um, and so I think that's what we'll see more of um, likely going forward, less of the VCs making, you know, big check investments early stage, hoping for something to, um, you know, to hit, that you'll likely need to see much more strategic partnership happen to get these things across the finish line. I'm so curious what you make of the Patagonia founder giving away his company to fight climate change. What do you think about it? And is that something more Silicon Valley founders and CEOs should be doing? Yeah, he's always been an interesting guy. Um, you know, he operates uh, his business in a different way than I think a traditional capitalist thinks about operating their business. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't seem surprising knowing the personality and the way he's talked about things in the past and the decisions he's made. I mean, I think uh, he kind of banned putting financial services firms logos, you know, as part of their custom embroidery programs that they were having for a while a, a few years ago. Um, and look, I mean, it's going to go into these blind trusts, into these irrevocable trusts. And I'm sure that the uh, stewards or the trustees will continue to operate this business in a smart way. Uh, I, I doubt that the trustees are, are going to basically shred the thing and give it away. I'm sure they're going to continue to run the business and that the dividends and the profits generated from that business over time can be used to fund, um, you know, uh, initiatives uh, in climate change mitigation uh, and um and I think that that's a very noble way to transfer the ownership of your business rather than just give it away to a bunch of NGOs and nonprofits. Let the trustees that you know and trust operate the business for you that can generate cash and value over time and then decide where that cash and where that value should be allocated to really drive impact in the world. So it's, it's a great noble decision and, um, you know, really fits well with the way he's talked about what he's done in the past. Meantime, I got to ask you, since the Twitter Musk dispute has been a running topic on your All In pod, you interviewed Elon Musk at the All In Summit. Do you think this deal goes through? Uh, does Musk end up buying Twitter? And if so, how does that change the social media ecosystem? Yeah, I think, um, look, th there are probably two key things at play here. The first is, you know, what, what ends up happening in the courts as they go through this this legal process. And um, uh, I, I saw a great uh, post by a legal analyst a few weeks ago, and I wish I could remember the person's name and reference them. Uh, but they said, you know, the Delaware um, court there, the Chancery Court is less likely uh, to try and force a deal to close because then if the parties don't actually close the deal, it really damages the reputation and the integrity of the court. And that there's a, a case to be made that Musk would just simply say, no, I'm not closing. You know, do what you want. Give me a fine of a billion dollars. I don't care. I'm not closing the merger on these terms. And so it's this legal analyst pointed out that it's unlikely that they'll close the deal on those, that the, the court will try and force the deal. And I think on the other side, he saw value in the community. He saw value in the user base. He saw value in the social network. And I'm sure he still does. Um, and you know, regardless of what he's identified with respect to the bot problem or the stamp problem, as he calls it, that there must still be value there. So I would say that based on those two conditions, 
there's probably a bid ask gap that maybe gets met still. Um, and I would envision that there's still a motivation to do something here that is probably a function of the true size of the true network of users on that platform, because it is such an important platform. Deep down, he probably still really wants to do something. And on the other side, the court may end up saying, hey, you know, there's um, there's some way that you guys, we're only gonna charge a fine here, which forces Twitter back to the table to negotiate price and maybe something happens. So, you know, that would be my middle of the line, kind of middle middle of the uh, the aisle here kind of decision or, or, or um, uh, perspective on what might end up happening over the next uh, couple of months here. Um, all right. So well, we'll, we'll, see. we'll be listening. Yeah. We'll be listening to the podcast for more commentary. Dave Friedberg, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for stopping by. We'll be right back with more Bloomberg technology. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get back to that Adobe deal to buy software design startup Figma. This deal, valued at $20 billion, is the biggest ever takeover of a private software company. I want to bring in Figma's co-founder and CEO, Dylan Field, now, as well as Adobe's president of the digital media business, David Wadwani, for more on this historic deal. Exclusive interview. Dylan, kind of the Silicon Valley dream coming true here. You stick with your initial idea, you develop it for a decade, you sell it for billions of dollars. There are still people ask, out there asking $20 billion? What do you think is the potential here and why is Figma worth $20 billion? Well, first of all, I just wanna give a giant shout out and thank you to the Figma team. Uh, I am on this interview today and there's so many other people that have been involved in the success of Figma along the way, past Figmates, current Figmates, and I want to thank all of them. Of course, this is about moving forward now and uh, how much potential there is in a combined Figma-Adobe combo. And we really believe there's such potential here, uh, whether it's looking at Figma and thinking about how we can accelerate our efforts with FigJam through um, Adobe Acrobat and their giant install base and uh, their productivity case there, whether it's about the Figma design platform today and how we can bring capabilities from Adobe in, whether it be imaging, vector illustration, video, 3D, or more, 
or it's thinking outside the box of where we're currently at, thinking about developers and thinking about markets we're not serving and we were not planning to serve, such as creatives, and thinking about how do we bring the capabilities of Adobe onto the Figma platform and make it so that creatives are able to have more collaborative workflows, make those workflows web-based, and make it so that creativity, design, and software development are more accessible to more people. We're truly excited about what can become possible there in our combination with Adobe. David, we all thought we were in a downturn, and here you are doing a $20 billion deal. Uh, the stock had kind of a rough day as investors digested the number here. What's your response to that? Look, we, we at Adobe, uh, we're entering our 40th year, and uh, we continue to be very aggressive about the opportunities that, that we see. If you look at uh, the opportunity head and what Dylan and the amazing team at Figma have built, uh, they've built a company that's uh, two, basically going to add $200 million of ARR this year, crossing $400 million by the end of the year, uh, and, uh, and addressing a TAM that's $16.5 billion. And when you put it in the context of the efficiency of the business, cash flow positive with a net dollar retention rate over 150%, uh, there are very few companies uh, with that profile. And in the context of what we see and some of the things Dylan talked about, when we look, uh, look ahead and the synergies we can do to accelerate uh, Figma's move into that $16.5 billion TAM, to accelerate what we do in terms of our core creative flagship applications, uh, reimagined with the technology running on top of the Figma platform. Uh, and when you think about it in the context of how Dylan was talking about with FigJam and Acrobat, really coming in at that cross-intersection uh, cross of um, creativity and productivity. We think that the market opportunity here is massive, uh, and this was a great time right. to make that that play. Uh, Dylan, there was a great tweet from uh, Ruben Harris, another startup entrepreneur out there. He compared Figma to Instagram. Well, if you think about it that way, you hear the numbers that J David just rattled off. You're cash flow positive. You could have gone public as soon as the window opened. Why sell? Why not try to build your own $150 billion company and go public on your own terms? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we're super thankful that we had the ability to control our own destiny here. But at the end of the day, we have to think about our community. We have to think about the impact that we can have and what timeline we can have an impact on. And we believe that this accelerates the impact we can have, that this broadens the impact we can have and by leveraging and utilizing the expertise of Adobe, the capabilities, the technology they built, uh, as well as the amazing people they have uh, and they've attracted over the past three decades, um, we think that we're able to basically scale the impact we have beyond just design and move into new areas and be able to have more impact faster. And that's why we've done this deal. David, I, I know you were the architect of this deal, and you also sold a couple of companies, including uh, one to Adobe in your earlier days. What kind of advice did you give Dylan through this process, you know, personal advice in the best interest of, you know, Figma and his company and not necessarily the company that you work for now? Yeah, well, I think I look at it as, as a shared common interest. And, and shared objective here. So, you know, D Dylan and I have known each, known each other for a few years, and uh, we started having this conversation in earnest a few months ago. Uh, having gone through this process, being acquired as part of Macromedia into Adobe, 
the things I know are if you have sh uh, shared purpose, if you have a, sh a shared passion, uh, and you have a, a clarity in terms of how you're going to actually operate and go after the market, uh, great things will happen because there's so much that we have in common in terms of how we want to approach the market. And Dylan and I have been very clear in terms of how we're planning to run this. Dylan will remain CEO of, uh, of Figma, and, uh, and he and I will be working very closely to make sure that the decisions that he makes with the autonomy that he needs to keep the things that are special about uh, Figma special, uh, combined with the things that we can do surgically to uh, accelerate the business, accelerate our technology vision, and accelerate move into new markets. Uh, that's really the foundation. And the, the, big, the most important thing, and we talked a lot about this through the process, is shared vision and trust. And, and I certainly have a tremendous amount of respect for what Dylan and the team has done. And I think he, he's, he knows me well enough that he knows that I'm a person of my word and we're going to do great things together. It's mutual. And it's really helped so, that we each other <laughs> for a few years prior as well. All right, Figma co-founder and CEO Dylan Field, along with Adobe's president of the digital media business, David Wadwani. Thank you both for sharing both sides of it. commercial highway Ethereum has just been repaved. The blockchain network completed the crypto world's biggest and most ambitious software upgrade to date. This according to its co-founder Vitalik Buterin. The upgrade is called The Merge and appears to be a sell the news event. Bloomberg Shanali Basik has been covering for this. And Shanali, have you been up all night long? <laughs> I did this thing certainly happen? wake up at 2 a.m. <laughs> to see what had happened. Yes, Emily. And while it was successful, remember, and also one of the biggest upgrades we've ever seen in the cryptocurrency industry, it is still the beginning of many changes for Ethereum ahead to get to those ultimate goals that Ethereum is looking for. So what is really changing? Now we are moving to this proof-of-stake model. We are moving over from that reliance on miners to stakers who are used to validate the chain and really start to expand uh, other things that Ethereum is really looking to do, which is become more scalable, improve transaction fees and gas fees. But, you know, that's not going to happen right away. There are things that you've seen Vitalik Buterin talk about today on Twitter that will start to get you closer to that. But there are still some concerns right now as we look at the merge and how the next couple of days and weeks work out. What are those concerns? Those include scammers potentially appearing and creating forks that look a lot like the Ethereum chain as it continues through the merge. And you're also worried about the impacts on the layer twos that are tied to Ethereum. You're also worried about any unanticipated glitches that are not just tied to this particular merge, but the future upgrades, because those are the ones that are going to do the things that we want to see from Ethereum, which is improve those transaction fees and speeds. So when we take a look here, to, the, to your point, you're seeing some pressure on Ethereum. But remember, this is not really all about the merge. This is also tied to a lot of other issues that are happening in the macro environment. The merge, while there were a lot of people buying it leading into this news, there was a lot of education that went around the merge in terms of you know the future for Ethereum and what it looks like as people really start to take to the staking model and really bake in the place of Ethereum, not just in the crypto community, but while we have all these other global issues going on that are headwinds, Emily, including including a hiking interest rate cycle around the world that can put pressure on crypto assets, including Ethereum. So a lot still for Ethereum ahead. But again, the next few weeks will be pretty critical as people bake in this news. All right, Shanali, hang on. I want to bring in Preston Van Loon now, Ethereum core developer 
and co-founder of Prismatic Labs. Preston, thank you so much for joining us. Love to get your technical perspective here. It seems like it's been a success so far. When will we know for sure? Well, the merge event is definitely was a success. Um, you know, the merge is Ethereum's uh, switch from proof of work to proof of stake. It's literally merging the proof of stake blockchain that Ethereum launched uh, almost two years ago with the Ethereum mainnet. And we've seen that's had consistent uh, block production and consistent finality so far. Everything's a success. Uh, I think what we'll see over time is do the metrics hold up? Do we continually see uh, nearly 100% participation? Do we see consistent block fin uh, finalization and a healthy network in the coming weeks and months? You know, looking out longer term, what are you going to be watching for? Are there any potential um, red flags that you are, are, are going to be looking out for? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, with, with these kind of uh, upgrades, it's uh, really important that Ethereum stays online, right? It, it's uh, a really hard uh, thing to do. Um, but, you know, with these upgrades, they're also so uh, complex, right? So there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Uh, we do a lot of testing. We make sure that uh, things are working really well before we do the upgrades. But uh, things we're looking for, right, is making sure liveness is continued. We still have the, the same uptime uh, as before. Uh, one of the cool benefits of the switch of proof of stake is that it's a much smoother blockchain. Blocks are delivered in a, a, a more consistent fashion every 12 seconds versus uh, probabilistically every 13 seconds. Um, so really, we're just ma maintaining that uh, the software stays online, that participants are staying online, that uh, um, the network is staying healthy. How do you know when this will be successful? Obviously, the price action today wasn't all that good. And well, actually, it was down today. But you did see it rising very significantly until this point overall before we really hit the crypto winter. There was a lot of excitement around this. But when do you really see the benefits of the new economy of the system? Well, we're seeing the benefits today. Um, the switch is immediate, right? So the the energy efficiency gain that we've realized to the 99.99% uh, more efficient model is in effect immediately today and, and the prior model immediately sees. So we already see that benefit. We see the benefit of increased decentralization. There are way more actors in the in Ethereum producing blocks today. Um, in principle, um, Ethereum's proof of stake is working now. It is successful now, and uh, it's it's running uh, smoothly. You know, uh, somehow pandas, Preston, have become like the signature meme of yeah. the Ethereum merge. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> well, it, it is a meme, right? So there's uh, only so much uh, I can explain here. But the idea was that we have uh, like a polar bear and a black bear and representing ETH1, ETH2, the, the two layers that are merging together. Uh, and uh, apparently those two things make a panda. Uh, I'm not sure if that's uh, a, a totally accurate in ter uh, terms of science, but it, it is a fun meme and, and a thing we really enjoy. <laughs> What comes next? You know, this is very much, you know, a step in a series of more steps that will presumably give more people who are related to Ethereum lower transaction fees, faster transactions. But when do you really start to see that happen? 
Yeah, this the switch to proof of stake has really you know un- unlocked the next st- uh, stages of upgrades. Uh, Ethereum still has a, a very uh, ambitious roadmap and a very uh, uh, large amount of work to do in the next coming years. Um, we see that uh, there's already scaling through layer two technologies. And what we want to do there is to increase the security and data availability guarantees that Ethereum has. So what that means is to provide more data securely for things like Layer 2 to uh, provide that uh, uh, transaction scaling. Um, and at some point, we'll be also working on you know the idea about uh, sharding and having more transaction throughput on the Layer 1, the base protocol of Ethereum. Uh, but really, you know, this is helping the switch proof of stake is really unlocking all these things and helping Ethereum become a global settlement layer that it aims to be. All right. Preston Malum, Ethereum core developer and the co-founder of Prismatic Labs. Uh, thanks so much for giving us your technical view there. Uh, we're going to continue to cover the merge. Shanali, stay with us. We're going to talk about it from a crypto exchange perspective. The president of FTX US, Brett Harrison, joins us next to talk about spot trading and more. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Get back to the big story in the crypto world now, and that is the Ethereum merge complete. But with the transition to proof of stake, some community participants still prefer to keep supporting the mining-based proof of work version. So a hard fork is expected to follow within hours, splitting the chain in two, which prompted some crypto exchanges to adapt like FTX, who was the first crypto trading platforms, one of them, to launch spot trading for Ethereum proof-of-work tokens. Let's bring in FTX U.S. President Brett Harrison for more, along with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. So talk to us, Brett, about the dynamics at play with the spot trading here. And does this just undermine the merge overall? So with proof of work, in order to be able to support the computational puzzle solving, in order to receive the mining rewards from the network, 
you have to create these giant rigs of servers that are going to solve these computationally hard problems, expend lots of energy to do so. They're very expensive. So all of these companies that put enormous amounts of money and investment into creating these mining rigs suddenly find themselves as useless in the new proof-of-stake post-merge world for Ethereum. So there's been a consortium of these miners that have banded together to uh, basically create an entire fork, a copy of the Ethereum mainnet, uh, to create their own proof-of-work, kind of classic version of Ethereum, and try to keep that going. Now, I agree with you that it sort of undermines the whole purpose here, which is that Ethereum moving to proof-of-stake means that this entire network, which is the most popular network for smart contract-based computation, it is transitioning completely to an, an energy-efficient world and hopefully into a much uh, you know, faster transaction speed and lower transaction costs in the future. And this new ETH POW token isn't going to have the same property. However, these the operators of this network were airdropping these tokens on existing Ethereum, uh, you know, existing Ethereum holders, and they're going to want to be able to claim those Ethereum tokens, the Ethereum W tokens, and trade out of them. And so we wanted to make sure that we allowed that as an exchange operator. Now we aren't supporting deposits and withdrawals in them. We have many concerns over you know actors trying to. Uh, kind of put themselves in the middle of uh, unsuspecting consumers, not being completely sure which Ethereum chain they're they're interacting with, and as a result, you know, basically helping uh, kind of steal money from people who don't really know what's going on, and that's not that's really not good. You know, we are full supporters of this move to proof of stake. We have also supported other uh, crypto networks that all, that have always supported proof of stake, like mm -hmm. Solana, and we think that really is what the future of crypto is going to hold. But to the point that you were making earlier, on one hand, there's a concern about any potential scamming here, uh, people moving to the wrong areas, but also, you know, uh, while the actual technological change worked well today, how much does something like that undermine any credibility in a system? The majority of the computational effort with regards to these, this Ethereum chain is happening now on the mainnet. And a very small amount of, of power and transactions are happening on this new uh, ETH proof-of-work chain. Or, you know, even though some mining activity has moved to Ethereum Classic and some other kind of EVM proof-of-work chains that still exist, everything is happening really on Ethereum. And so what we probably expect over time is for the activity on these to, die, to fizzle out. Uh, you know, Vitalik himself has said that he expects and hopes that this will happen. And people will, you know, basically give up the old way of proof-of-work, transition completely to proof-of-stake. Because this is, you know, a, a superior system in a lot of ways. And obviously there's always trade-offs, you know, security, reliability ability, speed, the kind of investment you need to get into the network in the first place, level of decentralization. And that's still open for debate between proof of work and proof of stake systems. It brings interesting questions into play with regards to Bitcoin and what its future is going to be. But we and the, the Ethereum community as a whole really do support this new proof of stake uh, post-merge world. And we expect 100% of the activity to move there over time. What's your response to SEC Chair Gary Gensler's comments on the merge in particular? I mean, you know, he's he's been uh, pretty clear, doesn't think Bitcoin falls under securities regulation, but that post-merge, uh, the Ethereum network could. So there are many complicated legal analyses involved in trying to decipher you know, which aspects of the system might be securities and which might not. So, for example, um, the CFTC already regulates Ethereum, Ether futures on multiple venues, including CME, ICE, FTX US derivatives. 
and it basically lays claim to that being a commodity. But perhaps the staking in such a system might be considered an investment contract of some kind, and that's really an open question. And there are multiple kinds of staking as well. There's you directly participating in the network as a validator. There's you delegating your tokens to a validator to get the rewards from staking. There's also investment staking, which is sort of none of the above, where you you know delegate your tokens to some sort of um, protocol, a DeFi protocol, which promises certain yield. All of these have you know different. Uh, characteristics that you know may or may not pass the, the four prongs of the Howey test, and it's all an open question. And aside from the regulatory risks, there's also other risks involved in staking. You know, for example, the, mm-hmm. the price action that can occur between now and when Ethereum actually unlocks, and the fact that Ethereum uh, staked Ethereum won't unlock for people to reap those rewards for probably six to twelve months still. And there's operational risk involved too. If a validator fails to uh, to properly validate a block. It could have some of its stake tokens taken away. And so there's a number of risks that are still involved in the aspect of staking. All right. Interesting. So much to continue uh, to follow on this historic day. FTX U.S. President Brett Harrison, thanks for uh, breaking that all down for us and our very own Shanali Basik to you as well. In a win for the European Union, a 4 billion euro fine, that's about $4 billion, uh, upheld for Google's treatment of services on the App Store. Earlier, my Bloomberg colleague spoke with Margaret Vestier, Executive Vice President of the European Commission, where she is in charge of digital and competition policy. Take a listen. This is a win. A huge majority of the case is completely upheld, which means that the court has confirmed our view. And uh, and because of that, of course, we also feel the encouragement uh, to continue enforcing uh, when it comes to big tech. We have a number of investigations ongoing, three uh, Apple cases, one Facebook case, uh, and uh, quite a big uh, Google case uh, also coming up. Does the progress that you made with regards to the Google case, do you think that actually helps you with some of the other antitrust cases that you're bringing? Well, we get the guidance from uh, from the court uh, on our approaches. Uh, of course, one of the, the major things for us is first to prove dominance. Mm-hmm. Because if you have that kind of market power, uh, then our rules, they kick in. If you're just a small guy, you know, you can do so many different things. If you're the big guy, if you have the market power, then, of course, we become much more strict. But just to be clear, though, I mean, we know that Google is going to continue to fight this mm-hmm. as long as they can. That, that, that's expected here. Even if you end up with a victory in the traditional sense here, does the prolonging of this fight maybe give those other companies a little bit more encouragement to fight back in their cases as well? Well, I don't, I don't see it this way. Uh, also because we have regulation coming in to complement what we do with the case-by-case enforcement. Uh, the Digital Markets Act was just signed uh, yesterday, so we'll be uh, entering into force uh, mid-October. Uh, and of course, there is some time to adjust uh, to new rules, but by early 24, uh, those who are designated as gatekeepers, you know, real tech market power, uh, they will have to uh, complete to quite a number of, uh, of prohibitions, but also things that they must do. For instance, share data with uh, some of their customers. 
Some of already the threats of certain fines and the upholding has changed behavior to a certain degree. And I know that, of course, the EU has had welcomed as positive some of the changes, the proposed changes, indeed, mm. that Google has made. It's interesting when you look at some of the reporting on the Google story from US print, Boston Globe, The Times, saying they call you well, big tech's tormentor. And I'm interested as to whether you're finding that the US is becoming a tormentor too. When you're here talking with your counterparts from a competitive perspective, do the United States back you in terms of the moves you make on some of the big companies here? Well, I, I have, you know, the first time I came to the US as commissioner for competition with my Google case, people say, oh, what's she talking about? You know, crazy woman. That has changed completely. You know, both public opinion, uh, the legislature in their approach, uh, competition law enforcement, now cases are being brought, the state's also very active. Uh, and it's part of a global development. Uh, we see in South Korea, we see in Australia, we see, you know, around the planet, people say, come on, we need an open marketplace, we need the drive for innovation, we need people to have choices. So, uh, so that has changed enormously. And of course, we follow very closely uh, what happens uh, in Congress, uh, and we are very uh, working very closely with our colleagues here. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Friday, we've got the CEO of Grinder, the new CEO George Arison, will talk about his plan to take on Match and Bumble. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.